Section seven of Roxana by Daniel Defoe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. We lived as merrily and as happily after this as could be expected, considering our circumstances. I mean as to the presented marriage, etc., and as to that my gentleman had not the least concern about him for it. But as much as I was hardened, and that was as much as I believe ever any wicked creature was, yet I could not help it. There was and would be hours of intervals and of dark reflections, which came involuntarily in, and thrust in sighs into the middle of all my songs, and there would be sometimes a heaviness of heart which intermingled itself with all my joy, and which would often fetch a tear from my eye. Let others pretend what they will, I believe it impossible to be otherwise with anybody. There can be no substantial satisfaction in a life of known wickedness, conscious will, and does often break in upon them at particular times, let them do what they can to prevent it. But I am not to preach, but to relate. And whatever loose reflections were, and how often soever those dark intervals came on, I did my utmost to conceal them from him, I, and to suppress and smother them too in myself. And to outward appearance we lived as cheerfully and agreeably as it was possible for any couple in the world to live. After I had thus lived with him something above two years, truly I found myself with child too. My gentleman was very pleased at it, and nothing could be kinder than he was in the preparations he made for me, and for my lying in, which was, however, very private, because I cared for as little company as possible, nor had I kept up my neighbourly acquaintance, so that I had nobody to invite upon such an occasion. I was brought to bed very well, of a daughter too, as well as Amy, but the child died at about six weeks old. So all that work was to do over again, that is to say, the charge, the expense, the travail, etc. The next year I made him amends, and brought him a son, to his great satisfaction. It was a charming child, and did very well. After this my husband, as he called himself, came to me one evening, and told me he had a very difficult thing happen to him, which he knew not what to do in or how to resolve about, unless I would make him easy. This was that his occasions required him to go over to France for about two months. Well, my dear, says I, and how shall I make you easy? Why, by consenting to let me go, says he, upon which condition I'll tell you the occasion of my going, that you may judge of the necessity there is for it on my side. Then, to make me easy in his going, he told me he would make his will before he went, which should be to my full satisfaction. I told him the last part was so kind that I could not decline the first part, unless he would give me leave to add that, if it was not for putting him to an extraordinary expense, I would go over along with him. He was so pleased with this offer that he told me he would give me full satisfaction for it and accept of it too. So he took me to London with him the next day, and there he made his will, and showed it to me, 
and sealed it before proper witnesses, and then gave it to me to keep. In this will he gave a thousand pounds to a person that we both knew very well in trust to pay it with the interest from the time of his decease to me or my assigns. Then he willed the payment of my jointure, as he called it, his bond of five hundred pounds after his death. Also he gave me all my household staff, plate, etc. This was a most engaging thing for a man to do one under my circumstances, and it would have been hard, as I told him, to deny him anything or to refuse to go with him anywhere, so we settled everything as well as we could left Amy in charge of the house, and for his other business, which was in jewels, he had two men he entrusted, who he had good security for, and who managed for him, and corresponded with him. Things being thus concerted, we went away to France, arrived safe at Calais, and by easy journeys came in eight days more to Paris, where we lodged in the house of an English merchant of his acquaintance, and was very courteously entertained. My gentleman's business was with some persons of the first rank, and to whom he had sold some jewels of very good value, he received a good sum of money in special, and, as he told me privately, he gained three thousand pistols by his bargain, but would not suffer the most intimate friend, for he had there to know what he had received. But it is not so safe a thing in Paris to have a great sum of money in keeping as to might be in London. We made this journey much longer than we intended, and my gentleman sent for one of his managers in London to come over to us in Paris with some diamonds, and sent him back to London again to fetch more. Then other business fell into his hands so unexpectedly that I began to think we should take up our constant residence there. Which I was not very averse to, it being my native country, and I spoke the language perfectly. So we took a good house in Paris, and lived very well there, and I sent for Amy to come over to me, for I lived gallantly. My gentleman was two or three times going to keep me a coach, but I declined it, especially at Paris, but as they have those conveniences by the day there at a certain rate, I had an equipage provided for me whenever I pleased. I lived here in a very good figure, and might have lived higher if I pleased. But in the middle of all this felicity a dreadful disaster befell me, which entirely unhinged all my affairs, and threw me back into the same state of life that I was in before, with this one happy exception, however, that whereas before I was poor, even to misery, now I was not only provided for, but very rich. My gentleman had the name in Paris for a rich man, and indeed he was so, though not so immensely rich as people imagined, but that which was fatal to him was that he generally carried a chagrin case in his pocket, especially when he went to court, or to the houses of any of the princes of the blood, in which he had jewels of very great value. It happened one day that, being to go to Versailles to wait upon the prince, he came up into my chamber in the morning and laid out his jewel-case because he was not going to show any jewels, but 
to get a foreign bill accepted which he had received from amsterdam so when he gave me the case he said my dear i think i need not carry this with me because it may be that i may not come back till night and it is too much to venture i returned then my dear you shan't go why says he because as they are too much for you so you are too much for me to venture and you shall not go unless you will promise me not to stay so as to come back in the night i hope there's no danger said he seeing that i have nothing about me of any value and therefore lest i should take that too says he and gives me his gold watch and a rich diamond which he had in a ring and always wore on his finger well but my dear says i you make me more uneasy now than before for if you apprehend no danger why do you use this caution and if you apprehend there is danger why do you go at all there is no danger says he if i do not stay late and i do not design to do so well but promise me then that you won't says i or else i cannot let you go i won't indeed my dear says he unless i am obliged to it i assure you i do not intend it but if i should i am not worth rubbing now for i have nothing about me but about six pistoles in my little purse and that little ring showing me a small diamond ring worth about ten or twelve pistoles which he put upon his finger in the room of the rich one he usually wore he still pressed him not to stay late and he said he would not but if i am kept late as he beyond my expectation i'll stay all night and come next morning he seemed a very good caution but still my mind was very uneasy about him and i told him so and entreated him not to go i told him i did not know what might be the reason but that i had a strange terror upon my mind about his going that if he did go i was persuaded some harm would attend him he smiled and returned well my dear if it should be so you are now richly provided for all that i have here i give to you with that he takes up the casket or case here says he hold your hand there is a good estate for you in this case if anything happens to me it is all your own I give it you for yourself and with that he put the casket the fine ring and his gold watch all into my hands and the key of his scrutoire besides adding and in my scrutoire there is some money it is all your own i stared at him as if i was frighted for i thought all his face looked like a death's head and then immediately i thought i perceived his head all bloody and then his clothes looked bloody too and immediately it all went off and he looked as he really did immediately i fell a-crying and hung about him my dear said i i am frighted to death you shall not go depend upon it some mischief will befall you i did not tell him how my vapourish fancy had represented him to me that i thought was not proper besides he would only have laughed at me and would have gone away with a jest about it but i pressed him seriously not to go that day or if he did to promise me to come home to paris again by daylight he looked a little graver then than he did before told me he was not apprehensive of the least danger but if there was he would either take care to come in the day or as he had said before would stay all night 
but all these promises came to nothing for he was set upon in the open day and robbed by three men on horseback masked as he went and one of them who it seems rifled him while the rest stood to stop the coach stabbed him into the body with a sword so that he died immediately he had a footman behind the coach who they knocked down with the stock of a butt-end of a carbine they were supposed to kill him because of the disappointment they met with in not getting his case or casket of diamonds which they knew he carried about him and this was supposed because after they had killed him they made the coachman drive out of the road a long way over the heath till they came to a convenient place where they pulled him out of the coach and searched his clothes more narrowly than they could do while he was alive they found nothing but his little ring six pistols and the value of about seven livres in small monies this was a dreadful blow to me for i cannot say i was so surprised as i should otherwise have been all the while he was gone my mind was oppressed with the weight of my own thoughts and i was assured that i should never see him any more that i think nothing could be like it the impression was so strong that i think nothing could make so deep a wound that was imaginary and i was so dejected and disconsolate and when i received the news of his disaster there was no room for any extraordinary alteration in me i had cried all that day ate nothing and only waited as i might say to receive the dismal news which i had brought to me about five o'clock in the afternoon i was in a strange country and though i had pretty many acquaintances had but few friends that i could consult on this occasion all possible inquiry was made after the rogues that had been thus barbarous but nothing could be heard of them nor was it possible that the footman could make any discovery of them by his description where they knocked him down immediately so that he knew nothing of what was done afterwards the coachman was the only man that could say anything and all his account amounted to no more than this that one of them had soldiers clothes but he could not remember the particulars of his mounting so as to know what regiment he belonged to and as to their faces that he could know nothing of because they all of them had masks on. I had him buried as decently as the place would permit a Protestant stranger to be buried, and made some of the scruples and difficulties on that account easy by the help of money to a certain person, who went impudently to the curate of the parish of St. Sulpitius in Paris, and told him that the gentleman that was killed was a Catholic, that the thieves had taken from him a cross of gold, set with diamonds worth six thousand livres that his widow was a catholic and had sent him sixty crowns to the church for mass to be said for the repose of his soul upon all which though not one word was true he was buried with all the ceremonies of the roman church i think i almost cried myself to death for him I abandoned myself to all the excesses of grief, and indeed I loved him to a degree inexpressible, considering what kindness he had shown me at first, and how tenderly he had used me to the last. What could I do less? 
then the manner of his death was terrible and frightful to me and above all the strange notices i had of it i had never pretended to the second sight or anything of that kind but certainly if any one ever had such a thing i had it at this time for i saw him as plainly in all those terrible shapes as above first as a skeleton not dead only but rotten and wasted secondly as killed and his face bloody and thirdly his clothes bloody and all within the space of one minute or indeed for a very few moments these things amazed me and i was good while as one stupid however after some time i began to recover and look into my affairs i had the satisfaction not to be left in distress or in danger of poverty contrary besides what he had put into my hands fairly in his lifetime which amounted to a very considerable value i found above seven hundred pistoles in gold in his scrutoire of which he had given me the key and i found foreign bills accepted for about twelve thousand livres so that in a word i found myself possessed of almost ten thousand pounds sterling in a very few days after the disaster The first thing I did on this occasion was to send a letter to my maid, as I still called her, Amy, wherein I gave her an account of my disaster, how my husband, as she called him, for I never called him so, was murdered, and as I did not know how his relations or his wife's friends might act upon that occasion, I ordered her to convey away all the plate linen and other things of value, and to secure them in a person's hand that I directed her to, and then to sell or dispose of the furniture of the house, if she could, and so, without acquainting anybody with the reason of her going, withdraw, sending notice to his head manager at London that the house was quitted by the tenant they might come and take possession of it for the executors amy was so dexterous and did her work so nimbly that she gutted the house and sent the key to the said manager almost as soon as he had notice of the misfortune that befell their master End of section seven.